0: Hello everyone, it's May 24th, 2022, so Starliner made it to space and the ISS. It was a success, albeit a slightly qualified one. There were some pickups, but no showstoppers. There are also a lot of engine tests going on lately throughout the industry. We'll get a quick rundown on that too. Let's do it and lift off. And <music> we've of the tower Welcome to episode 360 of the. Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben.
1: And I'm Dennis. So we're going to call this an all-rounder episode. Yeah. 360 no-scope.
0: What is a no-scope?
1: It's in a first-person shooter game when you don't use your scope on a normally scoped weapon. So like the scoped weapons are more powerful, but they're hard to aim if you're not zoomed in. And so a 360 no-scope. I mean, like the actual cool thing is a 180 no-scope where you spin around 180 degrees and hit somebody right in the face Mm -hmm. without activating your scope because you rotate faster when you're not scoped usually um and so it, it it just it goes up in degrees you know uh 720 no scope like it just a hyperbolic exaggerations <laughs> of how good you are at playing shooter games
0: (laughs) yeah more gamer lingo that i'm not familiar with but um anyway um also i did i did want to mention at the top of the show um tim dodd did another walk across the starship factory floor or uh starbase
1: oh yeah i i saw that that had happened but i didn't watch it did you
0: yeah it was pretty entertaining, pretty interesting. I'm not sure if a whole lot of new stuff was revealed, but it's still interesting to hear these conversations, you know, um, and to just see stuff like, it, you mm-hmm. know, like, like as it's happening. So I just wanted to give that a little shout out because it's, um, you know, just in case somebody hasn't seen it. Uh,
2: me? <laughs> <laughs> me too.
0: <laughs> and this was part one. There's so, I mean, at least it's titled part one. So I guess there's going to be a part two and possibly a part three, just like the last time it did, I think it was a three parter or mm-hmm. maybe just two. But um, it's a pretty thorough walkthrough of everything that's, you know, happening because we have yeah, but to be honest, like, you know, I, I guess that's the kind of thing you have to do when there when there's not big, big news being made at SpaceX, you know, like on a regular basis. But there is this small incremental progress that's being made towards something that's going to be very big, you know. Mm. So I guess, you know, that's kind of how you have to do it is just kind of get, you know, a little update on things. Uh, so nothing too big to talk about. But, yeah, I mean, I can't wait to see. This launch of starship because uh it does seem to be coming um like obviously (laughs) sooner rather than later i think and it's going to be pretty spectacular
1: no no no. i i think it's uh i I think this is like exactly the kind of thing that i like to see just like the little tiny details but done in person rather than you know a slideshow or whatever like getting to see what the place actually looks like really gives you a feel for things
0: Yeah, so let's talk about OFT2, Flight Test 2, Starliner. Things went well, but not perfectly. I guess that's... That's kind of the theme for this whole right. mission, right? It didn't go off without a hitch, but uh, but it was all manageable. And uh, so far, the objectives have been met. There's still more because it does have to undock and then come back uh, in a couple days. But so far, they've been able to uh, clear every hurdle that's been presented with them because there mm-hmm. have been some technical challenges. I did watch this live. It, it was like, I don't know, like run of the mill. Like it seemed like just any other crew launching, except there was no crew on board. Right. But um, I suppose there could have mm-hmm. been. but
2: No living crew. There, there was yeah. a crew just. Oh, yeah.
0: There's, um, what's the name? Rosie the... Rocketeer? Something. The Rocketeer, yeah.
2: And then uh, Jebediah Kerman of the uh, Kerbal <gasps> wait, Space Program. Wait, wait. Oh, there, you was
0: haven't...
1: A, there was a Jab on board? No, I didn't There's see There's a Jeb on
2: board. Oh, yeah. Oh, Is yeah. that the they, gravity... They were, sitting, they were sitting shotgun. Yeah, it was the uh, gravity indicator. So I watched these,
1: this and Bo OFT, the, the first orbital flight test. I, I I didn't watch them, you know, side by side, but I, I watched one and then watched the other. Um, and like, you know, little things for OFT one, you know, BOA OFT, the big launch pre-written statement was, uh, beginning a new era for commercial space flight or something like that. And it was like, oh <laughs> no, you weren't. And this time it, it was something a lot, a lot nicer. It was like, um, Starliner returns to flight atop uh, a workhorse or something like that. But David, if you watch this live, did you hear them say uh, at like T plus 15 seconds, I think, on the flight loop. It was the first call after launch that we could hear on the live stream. They said, confirmation of good MET epoch timer on Starliner. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I don't recall that, but I must have heard it Um, at least. Well, maybe depending on exactly which loop I was listening to. I was, I don't remember, but, um, but yeah, that's good news, huh? Because uh, that was a problem that they had uh, yeah. a couple years ago.
1: It was noticeably n- missing from the first OFT. Um, and like, if you listen to the calls between the two missions, The first OFT, they're doing roll program and throttle callouts the entire time. And like in the area where OFT2 does the uh, MET timer callout, there's like total silence on the OFT1 audio. Mm. And then if you go over to OFT2, it's like silent, 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 MET timer. And then you start hearing a bunch of engine calls, like (laughs) just the... They kind of trade off. One is silent where the other one's speaking, and it just—it really felt like a a refocusing of concentration, which you know sucks that we had to do it. But I'm trying to get trying to be positive about it, <laughs>
2: <laughs> right? And 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 also just in case, I mean, anyone listening has forgotten what doomed the initial oft 1 right it was this mismatch in the met time that the launch vehicle and the spacecraft were saying to each other and as a result the spacecraft wasn't where it was supposed to be or rather it was, it thought it was somewhere else on orbit and was supposed to be in a very tight dead band like it basically thought it was docking i guess and as a result it was expending all its fuel to stay in this very very tight orientation and as a result it didn't have enough fuel to make it to so its you know this station so just in case you had forgotten because that was December of 2019 when that happened.
1: <laughs> was it was it that it thought it was docking or that it thought that it was in a burn and needed to You're have right. Really
2: Maybe tight... yeah, yeah. I I you that sounds probably.
0: Yeah. I believe it thought that it was kind of in the final approach. I don't know what phase <laughs> Maybe, of yeah, the docking. Yeah. I mean not 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 like actual docking but coming up on it perhaps. Oh, um, okay. Hmm. So
2: so
1: it was related to a docking mode. Okay.
2: Well, or another it was a much tighter dead band that it needed to be in and as a result (laughs) it yeah it burned fuel uh needlessly and didn't have enough to make it to the station so check out uh if you're interested uh episode 241 uh clock kerfuffle where we had uh emery stagmer come on and give us a wonderful breakdown of exactly what had happened between or yeah what had happened that failed uh They made OFT1 fail.
1: So y'all did more research than I did for this week. Um, But one of the things that I noticed that you guys didn't have in there was uh, some debris shedding, which it doesn't look super worrying, uh, but it was almost exactly at. Uh, t plus three minutes, so it was right after the the solid boosters separated and uh, i 'll have a a gif in the show notes that slowed down and zoomed in and um Elizabeth Tink so this is reported third hand. What broke off was not from Atlas. One of my coworkers used to design those thrusters, and is ninety percent certain that is what broke off. so I think this is the quote unquote failed thrusters. I think they actually separated from the vehicle. Um, which is a little bizarre. But do you guys want to talk about, about those thruster failures?
0: So I don't know how much credence there is... To that, I thought that that was kind of just a a random tweet that maybe shouldn't be taken too seriously. Of course, you know the person believed what they said, but I thought that it was just ice and that it maybe looked like, you know, a thruster or something. Something fell off.
1: Yeah, (laughs) I mean, it it might just be it might just be housing or something. It's not necessarily the whole thruster coming off.
0: Yeah, because it it seems like if something like this happened, it would cause a failure much larger than what was experienced, which was just you know you do a burn doesn't work, then you do a second burn for twenty something seconds, and then you switch to the third one you know, the the third thruster on that particular um, doghouse.
2: There were rain flaps that were still on Starliner when it made it to orbit or like even when it was docked. Like if you look at these close-up images Mm. uh, Samantha Christopheretti took, you can just see these little, you know, flappy things around some of the pods. Uh, These are the four looking pods. So maybe that was just some of this getting shed off at T plus three minutes. I mean...
0: It is possible that it's some kind of hardware, but if it is, I guess my point is that it's just not... It, it at least doesn't seem to me to be critical because I mean it could be related to what happened mm-hmm. um, with the burn and how that didn't go correctly. But I figured they would mention that. But then again, maybe not. And maybe since right. Boeing does not know for sure, they don't want to say it. And but you know that's mm-hmm. like a that's like a working theory. Um, but I haven't heard any mentioned except for that one thing on Twitter. You know that this could be part of you know like an engine or something. But otherwise, I thought that most people most people were thinking it's that it could be ice or it could be some kind of a piece of hardware that's not critical in my. Might fall off anyway you know like a little rain mm-hmm. flap or something
1: it looks a lot bigger than than a than a rain flap and it, it's an odd shape i mean it's it's almost uh triangular and yeah i mean it it happens so far ahead of the um the nose cap uh deployment and the skirt the aero skirt deployment. Like mm. I don't know. Like it's it's very close to another staging event, but not one that should be happening that high up. I don't know. It's it's really odd.
0: To me it looks like chunks of something white, which to me could be ice. That's why I say that. Like it doesn't look like it's not ice to me.
1: Yeah, I mean it, it's definitely light colored um but there's like a spray of debris that might be ice and then there's a big chunk that comes off and it's got so much structure and it's got, you know, nooks and crannies and, and shadows in it, it doesn't it do, it it looks bigger than ice buildup should be. You know, if if you get a sheet of ice it's gonna break off into little tiny pieces, not stay in one big chunk.
2: Yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. And if if like seeing it as a piece of hardware related to the thrusters, I'm just thinking that I could see then why a thruster might fail After one second, if it lost (laughs) some piece of metal, that's part of it. But to fire for twenty some seconds until it finally failed, that seems tough. To I don't know. It only has this this like dog leg shape.
1: Yeah, and it has this like dog leg shape in this frame, and then after it Mm. tumbles, you get another frame where it's you know it looks like a cockpit shape.
0: See, actually, that dog leg shape it looks like it looks like it's outlining the dog house structure. So maybe it could be ice built up um, like around that structure and then it comes off, you know, like it. I, I know what, what you're kinda... saying.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It almost looks like there's, yeah, there's a square chunk. Yeah. A rectangular chunk missing from it that might have been it wrapped around a doghouse or or something else. Because, I mean, yeah, the doghouses are rectangular in, t- in cross section. I'm just wondering if there's anything upstream like a piece of a thermal blanket or something. Because there is that one piece of hardware. I guess I could have asked about that. There, there. Do you know what that thing is sticking out? Uh, just below one of the kind of portholes.
0: That's um I, the, I think you're talking about the umbilical.
2: I that's what I'm talking about, because yeah, exactly. It spans the two. Alright, thank you. I was wondering about that. Maybe maybe some ice was wrapped around the umbilical?
1: It definitely the umbilical definitely has a thermal blanket sticking up in a way it shouldn't. It's just like one little corner sticking up.
0: Yeah, so I don't know. I mean I, I don't it think it's part of an engine though, but yeah, it might be some kind of hardware. I don't know. But to me, it all just looks like ice. <laughs> that's kind of how I see things. <laughs> it looks jagged and debris-like. But yeah, so what did happen was um, the orbital maneuvering and attitude control thrusters, there was two failures and then a third one that – or a third attempt that worked. So basically on the Starliner, there are four housings, which are called dog houses because that's just a term that they made up in. Uh, each one of those has three thrusters and they point in the downward direction. And um, they did a – burn with the first one of these. I don't know if it was the left, right, or center. Um, that basically immediately failed. Then they switched to a second one on the same housing. That burned for 24, 25 seconds, and then that one failed. And Then they switched to the third one, and then that one actually worked. So um, and so yet yeah, this was all within the same doghouse, that same housing there. So if something went wrong or if something fell off of it, um, it didn't happen in such a way that disabled all three of these thrusters, um, just the first two, uh, okay. in different ways, which again, it's, it, it, it's just so weird. Like to me, that sounds like a valve problem or something, which wouldn't surprise me with Starliner. Yeah, the,
2: the different timing to fail. Yeah is interesting and might be something, yeah.
0: Yeah, and so one thing that was mentioned at the – or during the press conference just after – uh, the launch, was it that problem with the OMAX, the orbital maneuvering thrusters? Maybe it was caused by a drop in chamber pressure. Um, I guess that's something that they did register. So maybe they have that. And then, you know, they said, oh, there's a drop in chamber pressure. Then the engines cut off. So that's probably the cause of it. But I don't know how confident they are in that. But that hmm. is just one thing that was mentioned. Probably a drop in chamber pressure. And now I don't know how much more data they can get. But what's interesting, of course, is that this is all happening on the service module and the service module does not come back. That's, uh, right. So that's not. Something that they can look at in you know a hands-on way. They're just going to have to look at the telemetry and see what they got. Um, and I don't suppose that there's anything that can be done on station. That would be kind of cool if there was. <laughs> like,
2: they they certainly can't do an EVA. As I as I foreshadow one of our short and sweets. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah.
0: Can't go outside they're, and they're fix not, it either. They're
2: not, they're not doing any uh, nimbly-bimbly EVAs for any old... <laughs> I, they, they, yeah, they're, they're not doing operational EVAs until they figure out why we keep getting water showing up in mm-hmm. people's helmets. But no, I mean, how cool would that be, though, if they could actually like, go out there and visually inspect by looking up the doghouse?
1: I mean, we have, we have other ways of, of doing visual inspections. I don't.
2: We oh, think an arm could get there?
1: I mean, they, they might well fly Dexter around it, which I think would be pretty neat. I mean, okay, they're they're almost certainly not going to fly Dexter cuz they don't need they don't need uh robotic arms, but you know, they may fly uh Canadarm around it, which would be really cool to see angles like that like close up. That that angle from close up cuz I don't think we've really ever seen that from another vehicle other than, you know, mm-hmm dragon when it was having cargo removed.
2: So so at least, you know, as of this recording, right, it's, it's docked on station. It'll be there for a few more days. I think they were aiming at like five days total. And so uh, is, uh, during the press conference, people were asking essentially, well, is this thruster issue with the OMAX thrusters going to affect the rest of the mission? And the short answer is mercifully no. It already did all its burns, obviously, to get to station. And its only real remaining use is to use these more chunky thrusters is for the uh, deorbit burn but uh it turns out you can use the rcs instead as a backup so one way or another um i mean barring other issues uh even if this third and final omac thruster in the doghouse failed they could still in principle complete the mission
1: thrust is thrust Mm-hmm. As long as you've got enough fuel, you're okay.
0: Well, then that, so, so that's not the end of the thruster issues. Uh, there were, there were mm-hmm. also two RCS thrusters that shut down on approach to station, uh, which was also perhaps due to a drop in chamber pressure. Um, again, that's not confirmed, but it's quite possible. So yeah, a lot of mm-hmm. chamber pressure problems.
1: This thing has sat in salt air for so long <laughs> that mm-hmm. I guess we're lucky that we only lost Four thrusters
2: total.
0: Okay, so that's the thruster issues, but then there was also a slight problem with uh, the sublimator, and that was just during ascent. So the sublimator, for anyone who doesn't know, is basically how you keep the inside, and I guess other systems, on board the spacecraft cool. Um, they basically have to vent liquid water into space in order to remove some of the heat. I think it's stored as ice, at least that's what I've heard, um, or maybe it well, has sublimation,
1: heat Yeah, sublimation is going from ice to water vapor. So, yeah, it would be... It'd be ice
0: venting water vapor but yeah. it's um sublimated mm. from yeah ice because that's what the yeah. process of sublimation is um but they think that maybe that's because there was no crew inside uh and so maybe things just got a little bit too cold because there were no warm bodies inside and so maybe that's what caused it and that there were some lines mm. that were frozen solid but there was some kind of a blockage Uh don't know yet that was that seemed to have been a minor problem and it kind of fixed itself once they got to orbit
2: because right i think if i've if I read correctly, the, the sublimator, is specifically for ascent because, you know, your vehicle's plowing through an atmosphere. And so the heating loads are going to be a lot worse then. And so once they were able to basically get above the sensible atmosphere, then it wasn't really needed anymore. And the radiators, I guess, or sorry, radiators would take of
1: it. <laughs> <laughs> It's kind of crazy that they have two different cooling systems. Like, this thing is, is very complicated.
0: Yes, so that was one little hiccup. The next one was a uh, delay during its first docking attempt, which um there was a problem with the docking ring. Now, I don't know much about this because this is like a very complex little apparatus here, but basically it needed to be extended and they did that, but something went wrong. Then, then they needed to retract, reset, and then they re-extended the ring uh, and then they were able to proceed to capture. But um I don't know much more than that. Docking mechanisms are not my forte. So maybe Ben, you know more than I do about <laughs> what exactly went wrong there.
1: Yeah, I'm not 100% sure what happened, but I'm assuming a, a latch was stuck uh in the, the retracted
2: position. Right. Th- th- this is the ring on Starliner, obviously, right?
1: Yeah. Right. So so Starliner has the, the active docking ring. It extends out on, you know, like spring plungers, and it's got you know latches that, that grab onto to the uh to the station side. And uh those latches are are on the back of the pedals, I believe. And, uh, what my guess is that one of those latches was just stuck in the retracted position and you need it sticking out so that it can actually, you know, latch Mm -hmm. onto the, and so retracting it and redeploying it probably just reactuates all those joints and gets it to, gets it to move. You know, I mean, if there's ice in the, uh, in the radiator, or the sublimator coolant lines, why not have ice on the, on the docking mm-hmm. ring? Who knows? Uh, so I'm reading they, there are actually 12 hooks on the, on the ring, which is that's, that's a lot of, of things to actuate and move, but you know, you're going to have people, uh, and and air trying their very best to get out of these gaps. (laughs) You want want a really solid docking ring?
0: Yeah, so I think that was all of the little hiccups they had. Um, But other than that, it was a successful mission. Uh, They did dock, and they will uh, remain docked until about the 25th, and then they will bring back 600 pounds of cargo or... I don't know if it's garbage or what, um, but that is the down mass, Um and they brought up 500 pounds. So this was still a useful mission. I, I mean, obviously, it's useful for the obvious reasons, but they did bring up cargo, and they'll be taking back stuff as well. So I guess overall, good job. I don't know how you'd grade this. I would give it like a, I don't know, a B, maybe a B minus. <laughs> um
2: I was thinking B myself.
0: Yeah. <laughs> So let's translate on over to a new segment, <laughs> which is not really a n- <laughs> new segment, but uh, it has such a cool name that it should be one. It's called Test Fest. Uh, this is something that you created, Dennis. So what is Test Fest?
2: I just saw there was a lot of test firings in the news uh, from quite a variety of different engines and so I, and motors. So I just wanted to do a quick rundown. First up, and I mean this is in no particular order, but uh, ABL Space. Uh, successfully fired their upper stage engine. As a reminder, this is for their uh, RS-1 rocket. Uh, The engine's called an E-2, and they're going to have nine of those on the first stage and then a vacuum-optimized one uh, on the second stage, and that's the one that they were testing uh, now. And so uh, it it runs on RP-1 and LOX, and ABL Space, um, I think it it must have been during a firing uh, or something, uh, that they're the ones where they had that uh, explosion uh, earlier this year, uh, if you remember the pictures of uh, just some black smoke out in the distance, um, was this at Mojave? I think I think it was at Mojave where they.
0: Yes. Uh, yeah, Mojave Spaceport. Yeah, think you're right.
2: Yeah, yeah. So, congratulations to ABL Space. Uh, and then. This was pretty neat. The next two test firings that I want to mention both involve 3D printed engines. And so there's, I'm sure there's one company that pops in the head immediately when you think of a 3D printed engine, but there's also Australia's Gilmore Space. And so they fired their, uh, Phoenix engine for 190 seconds. And so this is a 3D printed Carolux engine that'll be on their, the third stage of their Eris rocket. Uh, they have another type of engine called Sirius for their first two stages. And so there's some really cool video of that uh, we'll have in the show notes. And then, of course, 3D-printed engines, that's Relativity Spaces Jam. And so they also successfully fired their upper stage engine. And so um uh, for their Terran 1 rocket, their Aeon engines, they'll get nine on the first stage and then this vacuum-optimized one on the second stage. And... Uh, recall that they are uh, liquid natural gas amox, which is methalox, i reckon i hadn't had had you seen references li- liquid natural gas like outside the context of like energy like you know uh normal non-rocket using uh, natural gas. I mean, it,
1: it's a different warming grade. Warming homes and
2: things like that. It's a different grade? I see, I see.
1: Yeah, so so it's it's predominantly methane, but it also has some ethane in it. Okay,
2: thank you. Okay, so so there's a difference there. So there's uh, also a great video of that, and uh, Tim Ellis uh, had a, uh, put a wonderful uh, image of the team uh, all kind of posing around it uh, after the successful firing. And then this one, I had no idea that it was on the uh, it wasn't on my radar at all, but ISRO, the uh, Indian Space uh, Agency, they fired their human-rated solid rockets for their Gaganyan mission. Oh. Um, the, and so, uh, if you recall, right, so the this was 135-second firing, and 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 when I say solids, right, this isn't those little dinky strap-ons. This is like proper SSRB style. Solids. These things are big, (laughs) and so the 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 motor on a on a GSLV Mark III, their their kind of heavy lift vehicle, is called the S200. And so this is the human rated version, the HS200 uh, motor. And so they've made some changes to you know the the joints, um, some of the control uh, software on there to basically make it just safer uh, if you're going to have human humans on board. And so uh, congratulations to ABL Space, to Gilmore space, to relativity space, and to isro for all these firings.
0: yeah, that's a cool little segment. Um, maybe we'll do it again in the future because there are there are all these little launch startups and they're all um testing stuff, yeah. you know, so this... yeah
2: right I just liked it as uh, just kind of basically brushing up right Remember ABL. okay. remember what Gilmore space is doing. Remember what relativity is <laughs> doing. Remember isro is trying to send humans, which is, really really cool i mean a a new country sending humans to orbit that's yes. just it's gonna be so wonderful when that when that happens yeah.
1: i'm still nervous about uh solid rockets and humans because if you have to do an abort your parachutes are are useless while you're near mm. that exhaust and so you know luckily we have much more sophisticated technology these days and we can do uh maneuvers and plume tracking at you know whatever it takes but and I'm I'm sure they have really good contingencies in mind, but it just it makes me nervous, you know.
2: Yeah, no, there's certainly cause for that, but at least the capsule is upstream.
1: At least the capsule's upstream and at least, well, that right, so if you're punching out, you're not gonna be upstream for long. But <laughs> at, at least they spent extra time looking at the seals. <laughs> Because Mm -hmm. we know that that's at least one failure mode.
0: All right, so this week, let's do three short and sweets as usual. And Dennis, what's the first?
2: First up, Voyager 1 returning bad telemetry. After 45 years in space, NASA's Voyager 1 spacecraft is still operating at 14.5 billion miles from Earth, although recently it's been sending back odd telemetry data. While the Articulation and Control System, or AACS, which handles the spacecraft's orientation and antenna pointing, is still working, the telemetry it is returning is invalid. JPL has said the data may be randomly generated and doesn't reflect any possible state the AACS could be in. The issue hasn't put the probe in safe mode, and while a software fix or switch to backup hardware could fix it, the mission's engineers may simply choose to live. All right, next
1: up, NASA investigates spacesuit water leaks. Agency officials have announced that due to recent issues with water leaking in the EMU suits that only essential EVAs will be performed until the problem is addressed. Most recently, water was found in the helmet of ESA astronaut Matthias Maurer after a spacewalk in March. The EMU won't be returned to Earth for investigation until July, so non-urgent EVAs from NASA are off the table until then. This isn't the first time water leakage has suspended a spacewalk, as Luca Parmitano suffered a severe leak in a 2013
0: incident, though he did emerge safely without injury. And then, and lastly, the end to Insight Mission is Insight. Bad pun, I know. Alright. With a steady increasing accumulation of dust on its solar panels, NASA has announced the Insight Mars Lander mission will likely conclude by the end of this year. Controllers will begin shutting down some science instruments as well as position the arm into a retirement pose with the arm-mounted camera aimed at the spacecraft's seismometer. The solar panels are producing only one-tenth of their normal power and without a hoped-for cleaning event from a dust devil or wind gust, the mission team anticipates it will fall below survivability by the end of the year. This announcement comes weeks after InSight detected a magnitude 5 Mars quake, the largest of the 1,313 quakes detected to date.
2: And fourthly, Ingenuity back in action. After losing power due to dim lighting and dust accumulation on its solar panels, Ingenuity failed to contact Perseverance back on May 3rd. A power loss results in the loss of the helicopter's state, including its clock. Normally, a good morning call happens at the same time each morning, but difficult to predict charge rates result in wide variation of call-in times when Ingenuity was able to boot back up. The Perseverance team sacrificed a day of science activities to sit and listen for a call from the helicopter and contact was successfully re-established on Sol 429 at 11.45 a.m. local time. To get back to a stable charge-discharge state, the helicopter will be operating in a preservation mode for a few days, shutting down at night instead of running heaters.
1: Okay, stand by We're looking at it.
0: Questions, comments, and correction burns in just one quick little tiny correction. Uh, what is that correction, Ben?
1: Yeah, so this is from uh, Laura Forchuk on Twitter. Thank you, Laura. Uh, I don't know. So pronunciations are always tough for us because we do a lot more reading than we do listening. <laughs> um, so last week we talked about Expo, the rocket company, and Laura points out it's pronounced Crossbow. Which makes a lot of sense once you know it, <laughs> but, but I don't think anybody sees uh, "expo" and uh, doesn't pronounce it "expo." But yeah, crossbow—it's a—it's a biological. Uh, like a like a genetic sounding name to me now
0: <laughs> but thank you laura quick correction there and let's move on to this week in spaceflight history um just a quick list of uh, winners as well we have Desky miller the greek and leon running man so yeah the clue last week was freshly imported and i guess that was uh hard enough that we got just three correct answers well so not bad not great you know whatever uh right in the middle there so good clue, Ben. Um, and what is that clue in reference to?
1: All right. So this week in space history, it's the 24th of May, 2000. It was the first launch of Atlas III. Um The clue, we can jump straight to the punch. The clue is referencing the fact that this was the first launch of a U.S. vehicle uh, with these uh, imported RD-180 engines. Um, like, they're super famous. I don't think I need to talk too much about them. Although... I did just say engines. There's only one engine, two engine nozzles for one engine. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I want to talk a little bit about the history of, of the Atlas three and, uh, sort of its legacy. So back in 1996, um, Lockheed Martin announced that they had signed, uh, engine contracts for this RD 180. So, to rewind a little bit, the Atlas II was the first Atlas vehicle to not use the vernier engines for, for steering and instead to gimbal the engine. Uh, vernier engines are the, the little guys sticking off the side of the vehicle. They look, they look ancient. Um, and Atlas II also got rid of the stage and a half architecture that Atlas was known for. It had a sustainer engine in the middle and then it had two, um, uh, two booster engines on the outside. Uh, and, and it would drop those two engines just straight out of, uh, of the engine skirt at the bottom. It's, it's really a a bizarre concept today. Uh, like how heavy are your engines that they're worth getting rid of before the, fuel that the fuel tank that they're connected to and and then to to step back a little bit farther i want to remind everybody that atlas 3 is not the third variant of atlas among others they went through atlas a b c d e f g h and i and then after i they went to i i and i i i i've seen people kind of uh rankle at this go you know f h one, two, three, but I think it's actually a really elegant nomenclature jump. If you want to mark a big change in the vehicle, that's not big enough to call it a new vehicle. Like if it happens to happen at, at I, or, you know, the one after I like that, that's actually really cool. I I like that. Right. So the, these engine contracts, right. What was going on at the time uh, within Lockheed Martin, this was before ULA, right? Lockheed Martin wanted to uh, prepare for their entry into EELV, uh, the uh, Evolved Expendable Launch Vehicle, a, a DOT launch contract. And I don't know if they had ELV particularly in mind, uh, but you know they're they're trying to reduce. The, I think it'd be fair to say they're trying to reduce their costs overall, uh, whether or not they did. But I, I think they did. Now, of course, uh, Atlas Three didn't wind up being an EELV launch vehicle, but it's, you know, it's descendant Atlas V, um, as well as the Delta IV, specifically Delta IV Medium, both of which were flown, uh, under the ULA, uh, banner. They wound up being like star players of EELV. And so this kind of talks about how, Uh, this launch in particular is sort of the first step on this, on this path, or maybe the second step on this path. So, to increase performance, they stretched the balloon tanks that, uh, Atlas II used. I don't know if the MA5A, the original engine, uh, or the, the preceding engine would have been able to fly or to power, uh, these larger propellant tanks, uh, up to orbit. I, I kind of assume maybe I, I could go do the numbers and I haven't, and uh, I refuse to, but <laughs> in, in any event, they were able to increase, uh, performance on top of that by switching to this new engine. You know, it's, it's this whole integrated decision. There's so many different points it, I I really want to be able to say that, you know, they did this because of that. And they did that because of this, and it just, it doesn't quite work out that way. But the RD-180 had been in development since 1984, like six years before this launch. Which actually, now now that I say that, I probably shouldn't be shocked at six years being a long time. That's actually that's a relatively short time for you know a high performance engine in some cases. Okay. Um, but it, it was in development by uh, NPO Energomash, a name that I struggled to pronounce every single time. There were two alternatives that they were looking at, but didn't end up choosing. One was a Rocketdyne engine concept, uh, some advanced engine, uh, that I don't believe ever saw the light of day. Uh, I wasn't able to figure out exactly which, uh, engine was, uh, in the running. And the other one was, uh, AONK's, the, the company, AONK, the rocket NK33. <laughs> AONK's oh NK33. Yeah. It just, it doesn't, it doesn't read well. Uh, but the NK33. Uh, which is, you know, sort of an interesting, uh, an interesting third choice. AONK was working with Aerojet on that rocket. Um, Rocketdyne was developing their own rocket. And then the RD-180 also had a U.S. sponsor, uh, or a, a U.S. partner, uh, which was Pratt & Whitney. Now, while the RD180 seems like the the clear choice here, like just based on specs on paper, it does kind of do this interesting thing uh to the vehicle propulsion as a whole. Um, Pratt and Whitney also builds the RL 10, which is what powers the Centaur upper stage, right? Like we love Centaur, we love the RL10. Well, hey, the It's the same, the same manufacturer. And so by partnering with an Ergomash, they wind up becoming the principal propulsion provider for both stages. Like the entire rocket, it's, uh, it's Pratt and Whitney all the way. It's kind of a cool little, a little twist, not particularly important, but like just, you know, it's, it's neat. that They wind up building both of the engines on, on this rocket. I do like that. Yeah. Isn't that cool? And then one final note is that we call it Atlas three today um but the original development name was Atlas two A R, R standing for Russian. I don't know what the A stands for. Maybe it's American, uh because they you know, they had these uh American Russian partnerships uh for uh two of the three engines.
2: I don't sorry, I don't know if this is helpful, but there's at least a NASA spaceflight dot com forum user who does say that AR stands for American Russian.
0: Oh, okay. Oh, okay, so.
2: nice. I think right. that's uh, that's good enough for us as far as a source. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, so this this particular Atlas was an Atlas 3A. In the show notes, uh, I'm going to link to a wonderful video uh, by Scott Manley. It's it's a history of of the Atlas vehicles. The flight after this one was the Atlas 3B, and uh, the only difference between A and B is the Centaur. Uh, B gets a stretch Centaur, and it can also add a second RL10. Now, I'm potentially going to get myself into some trouble making a connection here. Um, but I don't care. I'm going to do it anyway because it's a topic I love. The common core booster is, uh, like a staple of the ULA line or, or of the ULA rockets. And, uh, CCB came from the Atlas three, uh, first stage. Now it's not exactly the same thing. And also, Like, be careful that you're talking about common core booster and not common booster core, because CBC is the Delta IV first stage, and we're talking about CCB. Yeah, it's bad, right? Um, already in this, in this short and sweet, I have had to re-record many lines because I swapped, uh, Atlas, or I called Delta IV Atlas IV, and like, it it totally broke my brain, even though I couldn't figure out why. (laughs) <laughs> why my brain was throwing a fit. Uh, yeah. Keep these as separated in your head as you can. It's hard. Uh, it is not the way that I would have named things, but it's the way that it's the way that they got named. So, uh, Atlas three only wound up flying six times. Its final flight was in February of 2005, but but even though it only flew six times, uh, CCB is like the real star of the show. It uses the same engine, uh, the RD-180, um, but they upgraded to uh, an isogrid aluminum skin rather than the the balloon structure. Um, so uh, Atlas 3 can't stand up under its own weight if it's not pressurized. Doing uh, an aluminum isogrid, right, is where you take uh, monolithic... Aluminum, I believe, and, and mill it out, uh, to have this, uh, this hexagonal pattern on the back. And you're basically hogging out, uh, struts. Like you're you're getting rid of as much material as you can by leaving some struts in, um, and so it's heavier. It does have lower performance just in terms of mass, but it has higher performance in a lot of other important ways. You can strap strap on boosters on the side of a more rigid frame. You can more easily transport uh, a more rigid frame, and so it's you know checks and checks and balances, pros and cons. It's all pros and cons. <laughs> So I want to be clear, like, this is definitely the CCB is definitely a child of Delta three, not a modification of Delta three. But I think it's an important lineage uh, to keep in mind. And so uh, CCB was used in a lot of places. Uh, So first off, Atlas five is is the biggest user like you can almost call Atlas 5 a bigger Atlas 3 right like there's a reason that they kept the Atlas name and did you guys know that there was also a planned version of Atlas 5 the Atlas 5 heavy uh which which would have two CCBs strapped on the side
2: of it i think i had noticed that like from Wikipedia one time when I was like looking up what the the numbers mean after like during an S5 launch, but I had, I had forgotten about that. That's really cool.
1: (laughs) I I don't, if it was in my, I'm sure it was in my head at some point, but uh, Mm. it has not been there for quite a long time. I totally forgot about this. And, And then there was actually a non ULA or ULA predecessor rocket called the GX, uh, built by Galaxy Express or planned by Galaxy Express, which is a Japanese company. And they were going to use uh, the Atlas 3 uh, booster, like the first stage, just straight up they were going to use it. Um, as CCB was uh, announced and, and made available, they actually upgraded the GX plans to use CCB. Um, and then uh, GX never made it to launch. They actually uh, retired the thing early. Um, but yeah, like Common Core Booster is a heck of a rocket or a heck of a stage. And it, it's cool that it's, you know, sort of this modular, flexible kind of thing that you can put different upper stages on and fly to different countries or I guess ship <laughs> to different countries. Uh, it's just, it, it's really nice. And, and I'm willing to go out on a limb and make a direct connection to Atlas three, even though, uh, I, I may, I may wind up reading a correction burn next week from someone who disagrees with me, but like, i really love this lineage okay so all of that is talking about the rocket we also have to talk about the payload and this is going to be fairly short uh it's uh, the payload was eu telsat 3 f4 so there are about a 1000000 EUtelSats, e-telsats uh and there are like five times the number of names as actual satellites because every time it gets moved to a different location it gets a new name this vehicle is one of the earlier ones Uh, it was built on a Spacebus 300 or 3000. Spacebus 3000 B2 is the bus. And so it was launched as EU Telsat F4. Once it was commissioned, it became W4 for West. And then, um, in 2012, EU Telsat decided to do a new, like, unified naming scheme. And they renamed the vehicle to 36A. Then in 2016, it was moved to 70 and became uh, 70 degrees and became 70 C. Then it became 80 A in 2017, and then it became 48 E in 2019. So, like I said, lots of names. W4, uh, 36 A, 48, however you want to refer to it. This vehicle is actually still operational. Uh, it has a planned operation of 10 years. So we're coming up on the end of its life, uh, 12 years would, would be this year. Actually, I guess it would have been the 20 f It will be the 24th in, you know, I think that's the day that we release this, isn't it? Yeah. I think the 24th is the day the uh, yes. show comes out. Yeah. So that'll be the 12th anniversary. Oh boy. Isn't that nice. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, it'll be, It'll be doing its uh, extended mission, I guess. We'll, we'll see how long it stays up. And that's all I have to say about Utilsat 3F4 because it's, it's another communication satellite that, you know, uh, fortunately for the world, unfortunately for us hasn't had any major, uh, failures. So Deathkin in the chat, uh, points out that I am off by a decade. Uh, my life is plagued by off by one errors and uh, when you put it in the tens place, it gets 10 times worse. Yeah, it, it launched in 2012. So a 12 year, a 12 year lifespan would have been 2012. So it's coming up on its 22nd, uh, year on orbit. So if we had saved this one for another four years, we could say that it had outlived its original lifespan by, by double, by twice, <laughs> uh, a factor of two. But, uh, we'll, we'll see if it, if it lasts that long. It, it's really cool that, you know, We're as a species, we're really good at building spacecraft sometimes like when, when you're looking at, you know, fancy, exciting spacecraft, they fail right and left. I'm looking at you Starliner, but when you're talking about, you know, really Mm -hmm. mass produced, I I would say cheap as chips, but like (laughs) very expensive Mm -hmm. still, but you know, these spacecraft buses, um, that go up to geostationary orbit and just, you know, survive and survive and survive. Uh, Those we can do really, really well. Exciting is not always good. But there you go. That's my This Week in Spaceflight history.
2: And it's a small thing, but I I noticed, I think it's pronounced uh, UTELSAT. Oh, is it UTELSAT? I mean, it makes sense.
1: Okay. Well, thank you. That's a good, it's a good rapid action correction burn.
2: Well, awesome. Thank you, Ben, so much for that. That was uh, really fun to learn about the history side mm-hmm. of atlas it's you know it's such a long lineage and such a workhorse and so to learn about the uh, atlas 3 in particular is something i essentially could see i knew zero about <laughs> until this uh twisted so thank you i
1: mean six six launches like who can blame you
2: <laughs> Thank I I appreciate it. So, David, I believe you have the uh, next clue for us. And so next week is the 31st of May to the 6th of June. Uh, do you have a clue for us? Uh, yes.
0: Yeah, so this is a little bit of a thematic clue, right, based on Ben's. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so, if, so if Ben's clue for this week was um, freshly imported, uh, next week's is uh, in 1996. The clue is domestically repurposed. That's definitely the hardest clue that I've given in probably a couple months. I think. It, I mean, it, it might not be too hard. Yeah, but
2: it, it is. It is as, out of step for
0: you. Yeah, it's not a giveaway. So, well, you, 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 <laughs> so you're gonna have to work at this one. I'm
2: gonna say you, you've heard it coming straight from the uh, horse's mouth. Uh, this is a challenge, <laughs> and if you think you can figure out in 1996 what domestically repurposed is referencing, then. Uh, and- Give us a uh, – you can send us an email or tweet at us with the hashtag this week SF and good luck.
0: Good luck. So let's move on to upcoming spaceflight events, just two little events, uh, both on the 25th. And what's the first one, Dennis?
2: Well, first up, we have – yeah, the only launch of the week. And so this is a Falcon 9, and – I'm sorry, much more exciting than a Starlink a Starlink launch. This is a Transport – this is Transporter 5. So one of these super duper ride shares that Falcon 9 uh, does so well. And so if you can look up a manifest of it, I'm sure there's... I mean, we could spend a whole episode talking about all the the, the payloads on there. But, um, yeah, so this this was a mission that was uh, originally uh, scheduled for Vandenberg, but they moved it to the Cape. And so, uh, again, it's going to launch on May 25th uh, at 1835 UTC. uh, That's 2.35 p.m. Eastern. And, uh, like I said, from the Cape at uh, Slick 40. Keep an eye out for that.
0: And then after that, on the same day, and we don't have a time, uh, will be the, uh, the on-docking and deorbit of Starliner on station. So they're expecting to do that on the 25th but that's actually not a hard date so just keep an eye out for that um it might be delayed but it it will be no sooner than the 25th so um you can watch on nasa tv and uh watch the i guess the hatch closing and deorbiting and all of that yeah so at some point from the 25th onward
2: feels like it just got there
0: <laughs> All right, those are upcoming spaceflight events. That's it. And so, with that, let's do it with the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music.
2: We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. And a special shout out to Deathkin, McMally, Mike, Colin, Chubby, and Leon Running Man for joining us live in today's chat. Thank you.
1: If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit the slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other
0: resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com and be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies.
2: You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We have Orbital Podcast on both, and you can talk directly to us by mailing info
0: at theorbitalmechanics.com. All right, that's it. We will see you all next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody.
2: See you Oh, oh,